0: This is Jonathan Morris. You are listening to the Doctor Who podcast, and you are most welcome. We're
1: here at Big Finish Day. It's Laura and Tony, and we're interviewing Jonathan Morris. Hello, Jonathan.
0: Hello. So, I love to be on the Doctor Who podcast.
1: I'm sure we're all very glad to hear your tones.
0: My wife is a big fan. She listens to all these podcasts. And just just gives me the highlights. <laughs>
1: So you are probably one of the busiest men in Doctor Who at the moment, and related projects. You've got books and audios and all sorts of things out. Um, tell us first about the republished book that's been uh, made for the 50th anniversary year.
0: Yeah, apparently um, yeah, for the, it's the 50th anniversary of the publication of Festival of Death. I, I, I didn't think it was that long, but apparently it was that long ago. It's an honour and quite exciting that my book was one of the ones chosen, because um, all the other authors, you can sort of see why they would have chosen them. Milligan. gone, oh. Gareth Roberts, he writes for TV Mark Gatiss, he writes for TV Bernard Rolovich, he's a hugely successful author um, and Johnny I imagine my name of all of them was the hardest sell to all the bookshops and it's it's weird because I, I read it for the first time uh, last year because I was writing an introduction and sort of, I spent the first sort of 40 pages going oh god, oh god, please can I just change all of this, can I can I rewrite this? Because hopefully, I think I've got better. I think I know what I'm doing a bit more since. And certainly when I was writing the first quarter or so of the book, I was learning how to write a book as I was going along and rewriting and rewriting and taking some bad advice, taking lots of good advice. But taking, and so it's not quite me. It's not what I wanted. And then in Chapter 5, I think it's... Um, or ch- it's um, you get Hoopy and Biscuit and Zab and they're flying in their spaceship and there's space bats and they're all drunk and all these flashing light buttons on our spaceship. What do they mean? Why do we never label them? And it's just, oh, this is funny. I just laughed my head off and go, oh, I wrote this. But um, I think you're allowed to laugh at your own jokes after a sort of decent interval of 14 years. So I didn't feel too bad. I can now see it as other people saw it because I've sort of slightly forgotten what I had in my head when I wrote it. But it was, um, it was lovely to go, oh, this is a, quite a good book. Touched by an Angel was better, though. Yes. <laughs> so when you were trying to
1: recreate that era of the show in a, a novel form, were you trying to find the humour? Um, were you trying to take it further or deeper or darker than it had been on the TV?
0: I think certainly with that book, my, sort of my main thing was to make it like on TV because I'd really admired the books that Gareth Roberts had done. Uh, the um, romance of crime and stuff, and going, oh, I, as a reader, I, I love the fact that they were, they gave you that feeling of, oh, I've just watched it on TV, but it was a book, and that's what I wanted to do. I think that, which, which sounds not very ambitious, but actually it's very difficult to do, because you've got to put all those little sort of clues in that spark that sort of part of the imagination. Um, I mean, it's, it's like if you write a William Hartnell story. If you start describing the colours of things... It takes people out of it in an odd way, because if you're watching it on TV, mm-hmm. it would all be black and white. I was keen to show off. Of course, I was. It was my first book. I was desperate to show off, and so it has all this timey wimey stuff, which this is before the word the phrases timey wimey had ever been uttered. <laughs> and so, starting the story with the doctor discovering his own corpse and then having to travel back in time, and then go, oh, everyone still knows who I am, so therefore I've got to travel back in time, and then oh, I've met a ghost that knows I'm, so I've got to go back even further, and all that sort of stuff going. I loved all that. I loved Back to the Future Part Two. It's one of my favourite films, and because I remember walking home from work because I had a full time job at the time, and just puzzling over the oh god, but if he, if that happens in that scene, then oh then that person can't know that, and there were moments where I was going oh, God, I've got to go back ten pages and start again because everything I've said contradicts something which I'm setting up in 20 pages after that or which contradicts what I said 100 pages ago. I don't recommend it, but obviously I've, I've done that again and again. <laughs> I've, I keep on doing timey-wimey stories because that's a Doctor Who thing. You, can, you can't tell those sort of stories elsewhere, and it's a lovely, unique thing to Doctor Who.
2: Well, you can't really rewrite the novel um, if you were given the opportunity to write it as an audio play, would you do that, and would it be very different, do you think?
0: Well, you'd, you'd have to get Tom Baker and Lana Ward. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can do it. You can do it out of separate booths. Um, <laughs> uh, it would be It would be fun. Um, I, th- I think um, it would be very long. I think if you actually do that as an audio play, it would end up being about four hours. But I don't, I don't think it would be that difficult, because it was written as a TV script, and TV scripts are quite close to audio, without wishing to be, to totally lay myself bare. I did revisit one of the um, premises of that story with th- an audio called Cobwebs, so I've, I've kind of already had a go at it doing it on audio, so I think um, I'd rather move on. Someone else can adapt it, I'd love for someone else to do it. Just pay me again. <laughs> but you have
1: been writing a fourth Doctor audio, for, done a few, yeah. Well, yes, but just recently for the Destiny of the Doctors, the uh, monthly anniversary release special. How did you go about
0: that? How did it come about? Uh, well, that came about because, um, because of because of Death, really, because um, the guy who's um, uh, producing the Destiny of the Doctor range, John Ainsworth, going, oh, I really love Festival of Death. I, I get grumpy when people say that, because obviously I'm a spoiled child, but also I go, well, I've, I've done a few things since then, you know. That was 14 years ago. And he says... Yeah, but that's boring, you know. The Festival of Death was really good. so, And so he's going, oh, what, can I have the Johnny Morris who wrote that one to write this? And so I he would, reading that book, going, oh, you've got a good handle on the fourth Doctor's character and on Romana and K-9 or whatever, and you've got that style, you can do something which fits with that 1979 Douglas Adams era of the of the show
1: well John was in a panel earlier and I don't know if you saw it, but he said that Lala absolutely loved the Babelsphere script and said that short of a genuine Douglas Adams story from that season it was the best she'd ever been involved in
0: can you just say that again I like, I like people I like hearing that really that's, that's extraordinary it gives you a sort of sense of vertigo I mean I don't believe it i don't I, 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 um you know I believe she said that and I, I believe she, but it's i obviously Douglas Adams is. To me, as a reader, he's a slightly sort of unreal quantity Mm. because he's just the guy who wrote the amazing books. And so to be compared with him is beyond flattering. It's slightly unrealistic. But I I work harder than he did, so fair enough.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What do we do now?
0: asked Romana,
2: sitting down on the bench. The doctor beamed. We give it a few minutes, make them think they've got us safe, then we escape using your sonic screwdriver. He held out his hand expectantly. My sonic screwdriver, said Romana. ''But I haven't got my sonic screwdriver. I left it in the TARDIS on recharge.'' ''What?'' exploded the Doctor. ''I'd rather assumed that you would be bringing your sonic screwdriver,'' said Romana. ''You normally do.'' ''What? But I assumed you would bring your sonic screwdriver,'' said the Doctor. ''You normally do.'' ''No, I don't,'' said Romana. ''Yes, you do,'' said the Doctor. ''You never go anywhere without it.'' Romana sighed in exasperation. Uh, you mean to say you left your sonic screwdriver in the TARDIS too? The Doctor nodded. I was doing some repairs on K-9 and it ran out of power, so why... Uh, well, I may have left it on recharge. So, Doctor, to summarise, we don't actually have a single sonic screwdriver between us. No, said the Doctor. Romana, I think we may have discovered a flaw in my escape plan.
0: Also, um. Is a story I'd been hawking around for about four years. Really, yeah. it was going to be a Tom Baker audio at one point, and um, then it was going to be a comic strip at one point, and a short story at one point, and and people go, well, people go would say, well, I like it, but could you do something not that? <laughs> and I'd go, but this is a brilliant story. This is all about Twitter, which is a very new thing, and and go. No, Twitter was about four years ago. <laughs> I said, well, that's how long this story has been hanging around. <laughs> so it's nice to get out of my system. I think it's still topical. I think um, the logical extension of where social networking will lead is still relevant. And it's still funny to have Lala Ward saying things like um, LOL and OMG. I don't really consciously try to be right like Doug Saddam. People say I do even when I'm not trying trying not to. Because, But what I... Do admire with his work is the amount of intelligence he brings to things. He thinks very, very deeply. He thinks um, he, he sort of um, takes a different, a sideways look at different things, and it's that idea of that you can take things in our world and give it a science fiction twist, which actually sheds light on our world and actually is relevant. And that's what sphere does. It's um, it's a sort of a look at our society today. But through the sort of filtered through a sort of science fictiony comedy version in the f- future.
2: When you're writing for a series where there is an arc like that, what's it like to write with some constraints, or somebody's telling you what part of the story needs to be, and you've got to do the rest of it?
0: One of the hardest things as a writer is just being told, "Oh, I'll go away and write what you want." It's it's always nice to have something—a little spark, a little sort of piece of grit inside the oyster that creates the pearl. Where you've you've got a setting or a monster, you have to bring back. It's always nice to have a sort of starting point. It can be fiddly if um, it happens every now and then that it changes while you're writing it. Um, I think uh, when I was doing the Ice Warrior story with Paul McGann, various elements changed as I was writing. And so you get grumpy because you've got to start. You've got to write something again.
1: When you hand over initial script, are you, are you happy that it's perfect and that anything then
0: is, is perhaps a detraction from it? I do put a hell of a lot of work in my first drafts. My first drafts are more like twentieth drafts because I go firstly because I overwrite massively. I, if I'm, I'm writing a five thousand word Doctor Who episode, ideally I'll write a seven and a half thousand word Doctor Who episode and then go. OK, I've got enough material, that's great, that's the main first worry out of the way. I now have to cut that down. And you cut it down by going, well, that's not very good, I can lose that, I can lose that, I can lose that. And then it gets down to about 6,500. And then you start having to go, OK, I have to take no prisoners, I have to be really strict, and it makes it better. It makes it better. And so my first drafts have already gone through that revision process again and again of me cutting it down until it's you know exactly 5,000 words. But then it's always helpful to have other people's points of view. I mean, my wife usually reads them first and just has her first first comments because she's there and because it's quickest, you know. And then you get notes and do second and third drafts, which is, um, it's always fine because there are things um, that you can get away with. Because in any script you go, oh, that's a bit weak, or that bit doesn't quite make as much sense as it could, or I, I, I could explain that, but the explanation's really boring, so I'll cut the explanation. And someone else will come back to it and go, oh, that bit doesn't make sense, could you explain that? And you go, okay, I can, I can. I, I did write the explanation, but obviously it is what I thought wasn't necessary to have a reader coming to it fresh is necessary, and so it's always useful in that way.
1: And you've also been taking over Doctor Who magazine, resting it out of Tom Spilsbury's hands for a month. Um, tell us about that project.
0: Uh, well, it, he asked me. Uh, they're doing a sort of a, a tally snap special for the first Doctor uh, of all these little tiny, tiny, they're like about one centimetre square photographs taken off the TV screen by a chap called John Cura for stories like Marco Polo and the Savages and the Smugglers and the Ten Planet which are wonderful little visual relics of those missing episodes. The missing episodes um, um, obsess me and fascinate me because I can't let it go. Why in the archive it's a total blooming injustice um, it's very it's very frustrating as a doctor who fan because if you if you like star trek you can go well, I'm going to have a star Trek-a-thon and watch the whole thing from beginning to end and as doctor who fans can't do that and that's annoying but it's also that you what little things we know about those episodes is so tantalizing we have these little sh- screen grabs which, and the scripts and the audios and they, oh, they go this sounds amazing and so you want to find out more you want to get closer to the having had the experience of watching it so
1: when the special was being considered, I think some of the telesnaps had been published in DWM years ago, but not necessarily all of them. What was you What were you trying to achieve?
0: Um, well, I wrote introduction. I wrote an introduction to the whole idea of there being missing episodes, which explains why they are missing A general lack of foresight, unfortunately. And going into the various other episodes which are missing, which we don't have telesnaps for, which are you know the Myth Makers and the massacre and so on, where you sort of are you've got you know even less. You don't even know what some of the characters look like. You don't know what some of the sets look like. You um you know they spent two days doing a film sequence of the final part of the Dr. Musk plan, but we don't know what shots to use. We don't know whether there are close ups, anything like that. So you know less there. Um and for the individual episodes and in other stories that where there are telesnaps snaps to sort of introduce them and go, this is why this story is interesting. This this story is um underrated yeah. because or so forth. And also to do, for the savages and the template, to do the little captions that go along the photos, which means going back to the camera script and the audio and researching it. And it's a wonderful thing to do. I, I recommend any Doctor Who fan to get the camera script and the audio and the telesnaps and go through it. Because if you're reading the camera script at the same time, that is, you know, the camera moves left. These people are in shot. The camera closes up here. It is very, very close to Hatchley having watched it, and having done this, I do sort of feel that I have watched the savages and the smugglers on the tenth planet, because the things I don't know are so small. Um, I mean, there's a thing in Marco Polo which bugs me in, in part four because a door, a, a secret door, opens, and the script goes, "A secret door opens." You go, but who opens it? How does it open? We know, we don't know. It's quite likely if the episode existed, we still wouldn't know. But at the moment it is frustrating that there's. No way of knowing at all.
2: Hi, this is Chase Masterson, and you're listening to the Doctor Who podcast. You are most welcome. I have in my possession a device that allows you to create secure subfolders in your brain where you can lock away compromising memories. (laughs) It was developed as a way of protecting confidential business information by placing a whole day into a memory box. I have a little rule no one is allowed to hear my name and live
1: Tell us about Vienna as well because you're kind of intrinsic to that
0: Vienna was um, odd I I came up with this character thinking it was corny and even some of the people reviewing it it said said space female mercenary in leather and kinky boots whatever that's so corny and it's like I can't think of where it's been done really I've I've looked Oh, I've looked but um it doesn't seem to have cropped up that often so the idea of um, giving her own series is also slightly daunting because she's um, an assassin who's on her own a a solitary assassin so you're the baddie and you don't talk to people and that's on audio you know you want a a sidekick so for the the memory box you you ended up telling the story from the point of view of two policemen so they've both got something to bounce off so Vienna's always and Vienna has a sort of a sort of companion in the, in, the, in the figure of Norvell Spaggart So, it's all the, a lot of the mechanics of just making sure that all the char- every character has someone else to talk to.
2: And Memory Box is quite timey wimey as well.
0: Uh, it is. It is. You know, is uh, Shadow Heart was quite timey wimey, but um, yes, it's, it's looking at how to be timey wimey in different ways because obviously there's no time travel in it, and I don't think time travel would work in the Vienna thing. But you can go if you are. Affecting people's memories of the past, then you are in effect time traveling. If you, if you can go, that thing that happened to you ten days ago isn't actually how you remember it, it happened a different way. That is a sort of um, a time travel. Yes. Uh,
1: in, in some ways, um, Vienna is such a big bold and over the top character it was a, a surprise that she came out of a seventh Doctor story you feel, you feel like you know, she would have been a perfect foil for the sixth Doctor for example it's got a, the, the Vienna series seems to have uh, a real energy and pace to it that you, know, you don't always get in more serious dramas but it's so much fun and more fun because of it
0: Yeah I mean the energy and paces I, I largely give Ken Bentley the credit for that because the direction is extraordinary and the sound design is just Amazing! I think um, if your listeners haven't heard Vienna Movie Box, it has the best sound design of anything Big Finish have ever done. In my opinion, I was just absolutely blown away by it because um, they're normally quite good. Obviously, I'm not, I'm not knocking the other stuff, but this was like, wow! This is this is a proper proper full on movie. But in terms of the, the largeness of the character, I, it's a. Uh, it was just part of the Shadowheart. That was all large characters. That was a big universe. It was, you know, you had Starbath, who was a very colourful character, and Tabon, Hold and, and um, the villain, and all these things. Well, you, they needed to be big because it was quite a wide-scale story, and so everything needs to be memorable. It's like in Dickens. All the characters are larger than life because you have to be able to remember them 200 pages later. Who'd want to write something boring, really?
1: (laughs) Indeed. And Jago and Lightfoot, we've just heard that there's going to be a ninth and 10th series. What's your involvement in all the forthcoming Jago and Lightfoot?
0: Uh, Well, uh, I I haven't been asked to do anything for the uh, 8th, ninth or 10th series. We just had one come out called The Age of Revolution, set in the 1960s. I don't think that's a major spoiler, and it's inspired by a few things. Uh, um, A Kinks album, um, the career of a TV presenter called Simon D., an edition of the Frost Show where there was an audience invasion um, and pans people on top of the pops. Oh, and the festival, of Mary Whitehouse and the Festival of Light. It has all these different things of the fact that during the 60s, the swing 60s, you had lots of people going, oh, wouldn't it be much nicer in the Victorian age? And so you can have Jago and Luffy going, no, it wouldn't be much nicer in the Victorian age, it's much nicer in the 60s.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome one and all. My name is Henry Gordon
0: Jago, your master of ceremonies for tonight's show. And what a show we have for you! Coming up later, we have Charlie Perkins and Lord Algy, Guinevere Godiva, and
2: Daxund Delight. But for our first act, may I present to you the vertiginous virtuosity of Tamblyn
0: Took and his Tumbling Turks. <laughs> So that's where Age of Revolution came from. Um, I have a story out of that in the sixth series, which I'm, I'm st- starting, it starts off that, that quartet of stories, which is um, about a, a sort of a fascination of mine about um, fishing villages that have vanished. Vill- villages that have been turned, uh, had reservoirs, or they've been um, used for army testing, or they were just on the edge of a cliff, and over the years the cliff has fallen away and the village is there no more but people, when there's fog in the air, they can still hear the screams of the people who were there that night. It's a ghost story all about coastal erosion, which I I think is very exciting. And um, after that, I'm doing *Jaguar and Lightfoot Meet Conan Doyle in 1894. So he's just given up writing Sherlock Holmes because he wants to write better things. And as far as he's concerned, he killed Sherlock Holmes off. He fell off the water from Wicomack Falls, and nothing anyone says will persuade him to bring Sherlock Holmes back.
1: You also scripted one of the second series of Fourth Doctor Avengers for Big Finish with Mary Tam. Yes. Um, the first one of the season, in fact. Um, what was that experience like? How, were you, how involved were you? What stage were you brought in?
0: It was all done quite quickly. I mean, these, these things are often done quite quickly anyway, but um, it was because... I think Tom had done a, a few and wanted to do some. He's going, oh, I'm enjoying this. I'll do another week. And they said, OK, that's great, Tom, do another week. We need some more scripts, please. And I was obviously sitting home grumbling, as I normally do, going, well, they're doing Tom Baker orders now. and They haven't asked me. It's, really, I, I, it's a personal the front because I, I like Tom Baker better than anyone. Has no one read Festival of Death? And so it was very nice when uh, I think David emailed me saying, oh, we'd like you to do one. Uh, could you do a sort of um, upstairs-downstairs type thing? And I was thinking, but isn't that the chimes of midnight? Haven't we already done that? And so he was very sort of keen that it should start with a sort of upstairs-downstairs thing of the servants and the real, real that the the Doctor and Romana are um, the lords of the manor. Um, And he wanted it set in the 1920s with the men in their own house. And the 1920s things inspired me because I love P.G. Woodhouse so much to write a Doctor Who story in that style, which was a lovely thing to do, but it's a, it's a rod throwing back because there's two things that are distinctly Woodhouse, which is the dialogue has to be consistently witty and flow and be beautiful all the time and without having to be PG Woodhouse at the same time. And also his plot's so are incredibly intricate. And although you could summarise the antimatter in about one sentence and go, oh, there's an old lady that's actually an alien that's sucking the life of a young woman that's prolonged existence. That's not really what the... Pl- that's the plot, but the story is but there's um, Mabel and Reggie and they're in love but they don't meet each other and then they're rushing across the, green- and the lawn and they trips over, uh, the cop- and the doctor and Mana are rushing back and forth and they both think they're so- solving them for single-handed and they don't meet each other but nevertheless it works and logically from both their points of view that they think they've done a without there being another presence and you have get these little scenes where um, Reggie says to the doctor oh I came with a girl and the doctor says don't tell me her name it doesn't matter it's all those sort of fast moments which are very, very difficult to do, but once you've got it, once you've got that story worked out, it just flows beautifully.
2: You did what? I told you I linked the randomizer to the TARDIS guidance systems and left it on automatic in a low oven. So now the TARDIS is flitting randomly throughout time and space? Yes, until the Black Guardian gets tired of chasing it and then it will return to us here in London eventually. Eventually. Oh, after it's visited a thousand words or so, it shouldn't take more than a couple of weeks. A month at the most. And in the meantime, Doctor, we're stuck here on Earth. And what about the dog? He's still in the TARDIS. Oh, he'll be in his element. I left the scanner open so he can look outside. And if he gets bored, he can always look things up in the data bank. He likes that. Aren't you forgetting something? What if the Black Guardian manages to locate us while the TARDIS is away? Ah. That's why I'm building this. Which is? It's an etheric field disturbance detector. Huh? It detects disturbances in the etheric field. Ah.
0: I mean, one of the things with the, um, these audios that you try and do differently from television is you try and give the companion far more to do because, I um, you watch a John Pertwee story and the whole episodes go by without Joe Grant actually uttering a word. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's in every scene, but she's just sort of listening. And you can't do that on audio. You've got these actors... Who have got, you've got the great actors like Louise Jameson and Mary Tam, you're not going to have them just saying, what is it, Doctor? You want to give them a huge chunk of the action. And so with the Antimatter, definitely my, part of my idea behind it was to give um, Romana a huge, a lot to do, just as much as the Doctor, not necessarily more, but just as much. And with Phantoms of the Deep, again, Romana has as much as the, as the Doctor to do, and K-9 has a huge chunk of the action too. Listen, to all this, this, those characters, but I wrote this, but it's the characters I, I fell in love with when I was six years old. But I wrote this, and it's just, you know, canine does not compute. But um, <laughs> I, I it's um it's a wonderful fan thrill to, to be in that situation, and I, I can't believe that my career has led me to that point. It's um wonderful.
1: It's fantastic that as a professional writer you're able to get fulfilment from it, but as a fan you're also full of glee about what you're achieving.
0: Oh, um, it's mostly glee, yes. <laughs> I think 90% glee, 10% fulfilment, because... I get very grumpy about it as well, but lots and lots of glee.
1: Well, thank you very much indeed for talking to us at the Doctor Who podcast, Jim.
0: Thank you very much. I look forward to listening to myself back and cringing.
1: You've been Scribbling in the Margins with the Doctor Who podcast with special guest hosts Tony and Laura who will never, ever be a footnote on this show. You can catch more episodes of the show at thedoctorhipodcast.com. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, or drop by the Doctor Podcast forums and write us a letter. Thanks for listening. See you later.